Episode 21, Collaboration Requires Trust. Today I'm speaking with Charlie Green from Trusted Advisor Associates. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I have a trust expert on the program. Why, you might ask? Well, because collaboration requires trust. Team-based care requires everybody on the team trust each other. The patient has to trust that the instructions they are getting are given with the best of intentions, otherwise they won't be adherent. Providers have to trust each other. I mean, if you think about it, the Sunshine Act might have happened because provider motives were distrusted. We could widen the circle also. You know, how much better would the world be if we could trust pharmaceutical companies or we could trust the motives of of payers? Charlie Green, who is the principal of Trusted Advisor Associates, is really an expert in in trust. How how can we get people to trust us? And then also, you know, the flip side, how, how do we know whether to trust someone else? I think the way that Charlie presents the information is absolutely fascinating and immediately actionable. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to Relentless South Value, Charlie. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So can you talk a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, My name is Charlie Green. I have um, been doing this trust thing for about 15 years now. I uh, grew up in the Midwest, got an undergraduate degree in philosophy at Columbia while I drove a taxi part-time, went to Harvard Business School, spent 20 years in management consulting, and as I said, the last 15 years have been focused on speaking, writing, consulting, doing workshops and training for corporate accounts on the subject of trust and trusted relationships in business. I've written uh, three books, starting with the the best-known one called The Trusted Advisor. And I'm really fascinated by this. In fact, I read uh, an article about you in Forbes where you called, uh, you said the leadership weapon of the future is, is trust. The idea is that uh, you know, leadership is a subject that's gotten a lot of currency in the last 20 years or so, but it's almost always been about vertical relationships. And we hear about these charismatic leaders and the characteristics of a leader and how do you demonstrate charisma and so forth. And if you step way back and just look at what's happening in the uh, the sort of industrial economy, one of the biggest things that smacks you in the face if you step back far enough is that vertical is not where it's happening anymore. It's horizontal. And with uh, with all kinds of um, you know fragmented businesses and subcontracting and internet capabilities, the relationships that we have between people over whom we have no direct control are becoming far more important. So it's how you influence and get along with, uh, how do you play nicely in the sandbox with other people? And that rhymes an awful lot with trust. That really struck a chord with me, just considering it from the perspective of the health industry, because the situation that you just described is exactly a perfect description of the, the health industry. There's not only provider organizations that are that need to collaborate with with one another after not having done so before, but there's also all kinds of other stakeholders. There's payers, there's providers, there's technology providers. You know, everyone is suddenly, with the advent of the Affordable Care Act, really needing to 
trust each other and, and collaborate at really a very fundamental level and never having done so before. It's, it's interesting. Well, that, that is interesting. And you're, you're the expert on the industry, not me. But, but what you described there is a, a, a case where nobody was in charge. It was a fragmented system. And it didn't matter that much, I guess, at least for the point of view of the, of the players before. But now it does under the ACA. And, and I suppose other tendencies, people do have to get along. So I can appreciate it's got to be a tough problem right now. It definitely is because in the health industry, you know what we say, no outcomes, no income. So <laughs> I, I wasn't aware of that. That's a, that's a good line. <laughs> I and, like that. And in order to produce outcomes, different parties have to now now collaborate. Whereas before, if I just did it, you know, I, if I just did my own thing, I'd get paid. So right. it's it's taking the need for trust to a, a whole new level. But, you know, here's another interesting thing that I also think makes what you're doing completely relevant. I was speaking to a, a physician recently, a new physician. And she was having all kinds of problems with individuals, you know, just kind of office and and medical assistants within the hospital. She needed them to do things for her. But because Uh. they weren't in the same organizational structure, they had no report. There was she was not they were not reporting to her. Right. Uh, She was having a very difficult time. You know, she knew what she needed to do in order to produce patient outcomes, but she couldn't seem to rally the individuals around her right in order to pursue that same end yep that's definitely trust relevant situation uh you know it's funny there's a mixture in in situations and i think the healthcare industry is a a definite example of this trust operates at a couple of levels Uh, there's an institutional level and who do you report to and who pays your bills and are there conflicts of interest and what are brand images and so forth and that's generally the weaker form of trust the stronger form comes right out of interpersonal relationships. Do I trust you to do something, to babysit my kids, to to not lie to me? Those sorts of things. Those are much stronger, more powerful kinds of relationships. And of course, they both exist and are both relevant. So in that situation you just described, that's a situation where institutional trust is probably not very existent and the, and the bonds that tie the reporting relationships are, are absent. And the person's forced to rely almost entirely on personal trust which frankly is not a bad thing because it is a lot more powerful. So what someone in that situation needs to do, it's not a total solution, but it's a partial one, is to learn the skills and the attributes and the mindsets of interpersonal trust so that you can appeal to the higher instincts of most of us, you know, in situations like that to do the next right thing and worry about sorting out the institutional problems later. If we were going to explore that that further, what what are those qualities that that combined to form a trusting relationship? Yeah, well, that's right. That question's right to the harder things. And and just one distinction first, and then let me answer that directly. A trust relationship is asynchronous and bilateral. And that's just fancy words for saying it takes two to tango. And the, the, the roles are different. The one, one person does the trusting, the other person is trusted. And those roles kind of have to go back and forth. If all I do is look trustworthy and you trust me all the time, eventually you're going to say, wait a minute, I'm the one taking all the risks here. When are you going to trust me? But your question went right to how do I get people to trust me? That's how do I play the trustworthy role? And that's what most of us focus on, fair enough. The way to think about that is what we call a trust equation. It's something that we took a concept and tweaked it some years ago. But very simply, it's, it's four factors. Credibility plus reliability plus intimacy, all divided by self-orientation. Very quickly, credibility is like, can I believe what you say? 
Reliability is, can I depend on what you're going to do? You're going to do what you said you do. Do you have a track record? Intimacy is, do I feel safe and secure sharing things with you? Do I feel you're not going to abuse my confidence or laugh in the wrong places, et cetera? And then in the denominator, self-orientation, who are you focused on? Are you selfishly engaging with me? Uh, or do you have the wherewithal to actually pay attention and seem to sort of care about me? So those four factors, you can think of them independently and work on them. Uh, and those are the drivers of how to get other people to trust you. I absolutely love that, the, the, the way that it's laid out and really, I guess, quantified in that way. It is kind of nifty, isn't it? <laughs> to it think really of it as a, is. it actually works pretty well. And we've actually done some surveys based on uh, about 60,000 people taking a quiz based on that simple formula. I read your, your ebook, Charlie, and it caught my eye that on the very first page of uh -huh. your, your book, which is 15 Ways to Build Trust, you used the example of a doctor and you said that her white coat and stethoscope are kind of instant credibility makers, which is the in the top part of your, your trust equation, being able to um, be right. credible. How do people fare in, in the study? Were, were doctors highly credible or trustworthy or how did it work? Well, it's, um, there are surveys done regularly by large major survey organizations, Yankelovich and, and um, Gallup and so forth, who rank professions. Uh, the medical profession tends to be in the upper half. Pharmacists used to rate pretty high. Doctors have always rated fairly high, like in the top 25% or so. Interestingly, the highest ranking profession in every country except Australia, where it's firemen, Every other country, when these surveys are done, the highest ranking profession turns out to be, no surprise here, nursing. That's not just among medical, that's among everybody. Nurses are the most trusted profession. And when you kind of deconstruct and unpack why that is, in our own study, I mentioned the 60,000 people that have taken a quiz based on that trust equation that I just outlined, turns out that the most powerful of those four factors, if you give them all equal weighting, is intimacy. The one that I mentioned that has to do with a sense of security, that people feel secure and comfortable speaking with us, that they'll, they'll tell us the truth and they feel that the, the other person will tell us the truth. It's intimacy. One of the fascinating findings, I think, is that based on that definition, one of the clear results is that women, on average, are more trustworthy than men. And almost all of that difference is due to women scoring more highly on the factor of intimacy which on some gut simple level makes a lot of sense. You know, by and large, we think of women as being more emotionally capable, and this is largely an emotional skill. And it's no accident that nursing is primarily, not necessarily, but, fun, but primarily a female profession. It all fits together. The biggest driver of trust turns out to be whether or not we feel comfortable, secure, safe, sharing confidential information with the other party, they will appropriately understand and react to us in the way that we'd want to be reacted to. So we've got intimacy, which you, you just described. Then we've got first credibility and reliability and, and reliability. So credibility would be the, the markers, you know, for example, the, the white coat and the stethoscope. Do, do you could you right. talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Credibility is, is among most of us in the general business world. That's the one that we tend to think of most. In fact, most people put more weight on that one and they think of themselves as being primarily credibility driven. Some of the professions I work with focus almost entirely on, on this, accounting, lawyers, management consultants, and so forth. Credibility is, it's kind of the cognitive stuff. It's what you know. It's how smart you are. It's how educated you've been. We, we assess people's credibility very quickly, like are there spelling errors? Is that a current version of PowerPoint? Do I recognize the name of the school hanging in that degree on, your, on the wall? 
And as you said, the white coat, the stethoscope, those are sort of trained cultural triggers for us to associate with, oh, yes, this person has been to medical school. They've passed whatever the, uh, uh, the vetting requirements are of the industry associations. They must be smart, checked out, capable, approved, et cetera, et cetera. That's credibility. I know you said most people focus on that one. Do, do you feel like it's as important as most people think or it's it definitely needs to be balanced with the other to, you know, the reliability and the in- intimacy on the top of your trust equation? Well, two answers to that. One, people overrate it, frankly. It is, it is an overrated characteristic. It is, you have to have it. It's necessary. You can't be uh, uh, stupid, unchecked out, uneducated and, and ignorant. But, it doesn't, but having that doesn't get you there. And uh, in some of the work I do, for example, people tend to rely on credibility too far into the process of their relationships with other people. If you're in a selling process, they keep on insisting on how bright they are. It's like if you had a job interview and you keep reading off your resume. No, your resume is what got you in the job interview. Now it's something different. Let's play a different game here. So uh, it's necessary. But it tends to be useful at the earlier stages in relationships. And once you begin to develop, uh, even within a conversation, much less longer-term relationships, it becomes less and less important. If there are, for example, I'm just thinking of the health industry where, for example, a technology, you know, an app developer would need to be working with a provider and sell in their, for example, technology solution, the way to go about it would be to make sure that the the credibility and the their education and and their street cred was known very upfront but after That's right. but after someone nods their head and says yes it, it, it's great that you went to MIT then move on that's kind That's of exactly best. right. The role of MIT is to have people raise their eyebrows and say oh you're worth talking to and then you talk. Okay, so credibility and we talked about intimacy. So the last plus on the top of your trust equation is reliability. What, what is that? Uh, reliability is an interesting one. It's in its simplest form. It's just, uh, can I depend on you? Do you have a track record? Do you do what you said you would do? There's overtones of integrity in there. Like we tend to think of integrity as someone whose word is their bond. Uh, it's mostly, do I have confidence that this person is going to do what they have led me to believe they are going to do? And uh, one of the common violations, for example, you often hear people say under promise and over deliver like that's a good thing. It's not a good thing. If you under promise and over deliver all the time, you are consistently saying to people, don't believe what I tell you. I'm going to do something different and I'm intentionally fooling you so that I can you know, make you feel surprised. That doesn't work. You're far better off making a lot of little promises and fulfilling every single one of them, especially the big ones, of course. Uh, it has to do with timing. It has to do with qualifications. It has to do with matching expectations to reality, truth-telling creeps into there a little bit, along with uh, showing up in, in, in credibility. Track record. It's, it's uh, can I rely on this person to do what I think they have told me they are going to do? So it sounds like reliability is something that needs to be established over time. It's not something you're that right. can... You're okay. right. Reliability, you're absolutely right. Reliability is the only one of the four that of necessity requires the passage of time. You raise an interesting myth here. We often hear people say trust takes time. No, it doesn't. Only in this one respect does it require time. This one it does. The others can be established almost instantly. Examples of reliability or me proving reliability. I I know I I was reading something that you had written that said, you know, just simply be on time for meetings, for example. So it can be as simple as that. 
Yeah, it, it is simple. As I said, it's one of the, in, in many ways, reliability is one of the easier ones to establish uh, because all you have to do is make a lot of promises and meet them. Showing up on time gets you credit. You get more credit by saying, I'm going to show up on time and then doing it. Otherwise, it just looks like a happy accident. And it also could be really relevant in as two businesses are, are working together. For example, if someone constantly sees that a payer is trying to get out of paying for something, for example, or if a provider never quite comes through with tests or, or something that they're supposed to be doing or a, a technology vendor is constantly missing deadlines, all that would right. add up to a, a reliability gap. That's exactly right. Those examples are, uh, those are good real life examples. There's a refinement there. It, you're reliable and dependable to the extent that you perform in line with what people expected. So sometimes you're going to be late or sometimes, you know, in some situations there are good reasons for why there might be some variance in performance. If you articulate how much of that variance is likely to happen or when you're going to be late or some sense so that it isn't a total surprise, you get credit for that too. In fact, you, in some ways you get even more credit for being realistic. So it's just as much about your actions as how you communicate them. It's the combination, exactly. It's do your actions comport with what people were led to believe you're going to do. Okay, so the top of the trust equation, we have credibility plus reliability plus intimacy. And this is That's all divided by self <laughs> <laughs> self-orientation. That's right. So let's take a deep dive into that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, we, and by the way, we, we phrase it as a denominator because it does, it's interesting. It causes people to think in more uh, creative ways about it. The denominator, self-orientation, it has to do with who your attention is focused on. And it comes in two flavors. One is simply selfishness. And we've all known, like if you picture the classic uh, um, stereotype of a used car dealer. You know, you come on the lot, that person's walking over towards you wearing their big plaid suit, polyester and white shoes and blah, blah, blah. We know they're selfish. It's predictable, reliable, dependable that they're going to be selfishly self-oriented. That's the obvious form. Selfishness is not a problem for us to spot. Most of us can see it coming a mile away. The more typical version of self-orientation is more neurotic, self-preoccupation, fear, self-obsession. How am I doing? Am I showing up okay on the video? Uh, are they going to ask me questions? Am I looking good today? You know, is my hair slicked back? All that is about yourself. And the truth is, we trust, we do not particularly trust people who are self-obsessed, even if they don't seem to be selfish. They're, they're still stuck in their own heads, worried about themselves. We trust people, on the other hand, who seem to be secure and safe enough in their own emotional space that they're actually able to pay attention to us. So it's this quality of being able to pay attention to other people. And it's partly a moral virtue, you know, but it's also just plain a psychological state of being healthy enough to pay attention to others. That actually really reminds me of something I heard the other day. I was listening to Peter Thiel, who is uh, actually he's a venture capitalist at this point, but he co-founded. Oh, yes. Yeah, he co-founded PayPal and he was one of the first investors. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. In Facebook. He said and this stuck with me, that he's never seen a company, in particular a startup, but any company, who succeeded, which said it will capture, you know, 1% of a very large market. <laughs> <laughs> and the example that I would throw, you know, to the, the healthcare industry is capture 1% of the beta blocker market in China, for example. Sure. And he said this never works because there will always be 99 other companies that's going to drive the marginal profit to zero. 
you know, he said that if you're going after a tiny sliver of the market, it will always result in big, unpredictable com- competition. Hmm. But it occurs to me that I'm thinking, and I'm thinking right now, that the other reason that Peter Thiel is right is that selling in this vague sort of scattershot way means that the selling that has very little intimacy or self-orientation, you know, it's not finding a customer with a desperate need or one where there's a perfect fit, except if it does it by accident. And then you've got 99% of the people out there who hear a marketing message that just sounds incredibly self-serving. I think it's, it's, uh, it may be a little bit of stretch from the self-orientation concept, but I totally agree with you. If you approach marketing or, or sales in, in a way that's totally detached from the reality of your customers, it's not going to work. It just doesn't work. I'm just thinking about this this self-orientation because I can imagine that that's probably it requires a little bit of knowledge about who you're talking to in order to be self-oriented to to them. Yes. Or other oriented, if you want to use that language. It does require some knowledge about them. But, you know, the truth is most people I work with overstate that one, too. For example, in in a lot of technical businesses, people think, well, I can't really, uh, I can't do cross-selling, for example, unless I understand all the product implications of all my partners. Or I can't go in and have that meeting until I deeply understand the issues of my my customer. That turns out not to be the problem. The bigger problem is, can I get over my own self-obsessions with my fear about performance? How am I going to do? How am I going to look? How am I going to make sure that I'm not fearful? Well, it's that inner battle that turns out to be much more, much more important. Ironically, one of the most trust-creating things anyone can say is, I don't know. You know, and we, when we're in, in situations and, and a client or customer says to us, how are you going to do this? Or what's the answer to this? And we're thinking, humma, 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 oh my gosh, I don't know. Again, one of the best things you can say is, I don't know. First of all, who's going to doubt you on that? Nobody. And uh, unless you haven't done your homework, in which case you have no right to be there, nonetheless, you're not God. Nobody knows the answers to all the questions. And you get a, not only do you get a free pass every once in a while for not knowing everything, you get a lot of credit for being honest. Why do people do that? Do they feel like saying, do they fear that saying, I don't know, is going to damage their credibility and they're so fixated on credibility? Oh, that's exactly right. Within the construct of this model, that's exactly right. People are, think that credibility is so important. And if they demonstrate lack of omniscience, somehow people will think they'll have low credibility. And therefore, you know, we want to push the push the truth and and try and manipulate other people's perceptions of us, which is always a losing game. None of us like to be spun and all of us have pretty good spin indicators. You know, we we know when we're being hustled and conned and we don't like it. Does this have a a flip side? Is there any way to use your trust equation in order to discern whether the person you're talking to is trustworthy or is it just kind of a gut level thing and you're going to figure it out if you trust your gut? I urge people to um, very much trust their gut. The thing is, all organisms are pretty well refined and evolved and human beings are just ridiculously evolved. And uh, we, we tend, you know, in the Western world to get really big picture here for a minute we tend to cognitize, if that's a word, or over-intellectualize all these things. How can we detect people who are untrustworthy? Shoot, trust your gut. You, you kind of know in your bones. It's not hard to see people who seem to be snow-jobbing you or, or seem to be self-preoccupied or whom you just don't feel you want to share things with. Just notice your reactions and, and trust your reactions. They're, they're pretty well-defined. It's not easy to fool us. That's why con artists are not 
terribly successful. Those that are are awfully good at manipulating, in particular, the intimacy part of the equation. It's not easy. Not e- even And even Bernie Madoff, who was great at it, he's in prison last time I looked. <laughs> Let's talk about how to how to make this this actionable. So if if I'm a provider and I I know I need to now collaborate with with peers, uh, for example, or if I'm a, a payer and I really need to work with with providers or get my providers to work with me and actually trust that my motives are pure, or or the right. same thing with with the pharmaceutical industry, how, how how do we even start thinking about this? It is a tough one. There are some industries where it's a lot easier. Than, than in healthcare, I think. Uh, I think, for example, the accounting industry, which is basically, if you fix individuals' trustworthiness, you've got 80% of the battle done. But in healthcare, in the healthcare literature, the medical magazines, you, you know better than I do, they're consistent cross-currents of potential conflict of interest and so forth. It's not easy. But within that context, two things. You can work the interpersonal trust issue in the ways that we've been talking about. And that's probably the first line of, um, of attack, if you will, is really practice being open, being transparent, being uh, intimacy safe, low self-orientation, pay attention, be curious about other people in your interactions with them. That'll help. The second part of the answer, and we hadn't really talked about this, is that there are certain organizational trust components, and I'll list four trust principles that if you can think about them and apply them in your interactions with other organizations, they will help. And very simply, they're systematically make sure you're focused on the other person, not yourself. That's number one. Call it client focus. Number two is collaboration, meaning cultivating a mindset that you're really on the same team. You've really got the same objectives here. You're not competing with each other. Number three, don't focus on transactions. Do focus on relationships. Never think that you're involved in a one-off situation. Always think, what if this happened 10 times in a row? And finally, uh, practice transparency as a default instead of obfuscation and except where it's illegal, which it is sometimes, or where it's hurtful, which it also is sometimes. So client focus, collaboration, long-term, and transparency. If you look at all your interactions with other organizations from those perspectives and do the best you can to push on each of them, that will begin to help. That's actually really interesting. And it also just brings into stark focus how difficult this is going to be for the health industry. Because if I tick down this list, hopping over client focus for a sec. Yeah. But if we get to collaboration, I mean, that's always been sort of... That's an, tough. It, well, it's always been sort of an issue because exactly as you you state, oftentimes there's conflicts of interest and oftentimes right. there's this very much zero-sum game, either real or perceived. Right. So that's one thing. Then the focus on the transaction. I mean, one of the things I know for a fact that has happened in the the, the pharmaceutical industry over the years is that it has become incredibly transactional that it's all about kind of yes. you know, selling the pill and less about how are we going to work together. And then right. lastly, with transparency, I mean, one of the things that I have heard over and over again relative to, for example, you know, pharma's ability to work with payers or, or, or payers' ability to work with providers is that everyone's holding their cards to their vest and nobody actually even understands what the other's true motivations are. You're kind of confirming my instinct that this it's it's not an easy one. And yet those are the things that have to happen. If you take collaboration, for example, you have got to step outside this and say, look, we have been thinking for years about zero-sum interests here. And it's obvious there are some ways in which we're in a, wrapped in a zero-sum game, but both of us are stuck in that zero-sum game. And both of us are going to get screwed by it if we can't think our way out of it. 
So let's collaboratively think about this prison that we find ourselves in and how can we collaboratively begin to work on ways to get out of it. And I do think that it also could revolve around being really creative and coming up with creative solutions that work for both parties, which might not be the original goal that either party had. I'm sure that's right. You know, for example, one of the things I'm thinking about is that pharmaceutical reps often find out that doctors have a a generic threshold to meet. So basically what that means is that doctors are penalized if they write too many branded drugs instead of generics. Right. But then the question becomes, what do the reps actually do with this information? And what we see a lot of times is that they just completely disregard. Hmm. (laughs) Right. We'll run in and keep hammering on. (laughs) You know, write the branded drug, completely ignoring the fact that the doctor has this looming financial incentive to 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 not write it. Well, I I can tell you that one of the few areas of health health care that I can speak with some knowledge about is indeed the, the whole history of the pharmaceutical rep situation and the insistent, almost carpet bombing like attack of self interested behavior has has ruined what could have been and should have been one of the great trusted advisor relationships of all time, that between a physician and a pharmaceutical rep. And it's been purely out of short-term oriented, uh, myopic uh, thinking, to not, not to uh, make too fine a point of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think people are starting to realize it or, or have started to I realize think so it. Too. But now they're kind of in a situation where, okay, so we've lost our trust. Yes. How do, how do we get it back? At the risk of trying to step into your area here, I was very struck by one study in the healthcare industry by Atul Gawande, who you probably know of. Um, he's, a, I think, with Harvard Medical School. And he wrote an article on the highest cost and lowest cost counties in the United States, highest cost, lowest cost healthcare. And it turns out that the highest cost county was um, in a Hidalgo County in Texas. And the lowest cost county was also in the West, in Grand Junction, Colorado. And after going through a whole lot of hypotheses, you know, is it the hospitals, is it the payer system, is it the, you know, the diet, the population, the ethnicity, whatever, it turns out that the uh, the biggest clear variable that separated the high cost and low cost was that in Hidalgo County, Texas, you had an extreme flowering of the profit motive. You had doctors setting up clinics and buying uh, all kinds of equipment and maximizing the utilization of those equipments and billing and so forth. And in Grand Junction, they'd gone exactly the opposite way towards collaboration. Nobody ever ran a test that was unnecessary. I mean, you'd always check with the other people. And you wouldn't run it through huge processes. You'd run it upstairs because they were co-located. Essentially, the triumph of a collaborative approach, which is a lot of, you know, thousands of little tiny decisions about how to behave with each other institutionally and personally. That ends up with a low-cost, effective system. And I think there's a lot of lessons in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also just once again, highlights the importance of what you're doing, because in order to achieve the results that Grand Junction, Colorado achieved, there absolutely needs to be trust. Yes, that's right. Because otherwise you kind of wind up with the tragedy of the commons. And and Uh, That's exactly right. Exactly correct. If we all, that's a very good metaphor. If we all behave in our so-called enlightened self-interest, Unfortunately, that's not an effective model for success in certain industries, and this is definitely one of them. Do you have any words of wisdom to to impart if we get we've gotten ourselves into this hole? You know, for example, 
there is a lot of distrust amongst players and we're all eyeing each other warily. Um, all these stakeholders <laughs> that um, we're kind of circling each other with very carefully. How do we how do we start to begin to to rebuild the trust that we've all either for good reason or not lost? I think you can say one thing clearly. It has to start at the personal, not the institutional level. And I think, you know, what each of us can do individually is actually quite a bit. If I had to give one really gross, simple piece of advice, it would be go go out and do the best that you can to listen to other people. Be curious about them. Listen to them not to learn things from them or to, to do a brain suck of whatever you can find out, but listen to them as a form of respect, as a form of paying attention, as a form of homage to another human being. And you'd be amazed at the response that you get when you behave that way, even in, in matters of a five, you know, five or ten seconds within a conversation. If you truly listen to other people in a, in the sense of kind of valuing them, their natural reciprocal response is to pay attention to you in return. It's just a, it's how people work. It's how we do things. I reach my hand out to shake hands with you and smile at you. Guess what you do? You reach out and shake my hand and smile back at me. And at that trivial level, you add it up and you end up being able to have dialogues with other people. Well, some of those people are from the other part or another part of the healthcare system. And if you can begin to have a dialogue with each other, you can begin to say, listen, we got institutional problems here too. How do we deal with this? How can we set up more collaborative systems? But that's where I think it probably has to start. It's not going to start in Congress. It's not going to start in great academic studies about the structure of the industry. Those have to happen. And those will happen. But the, the leadership thing, I think, has got to come from individuals. That kind of reminds me of a bumper sticker I see all the time, which is uh, think globally, act locally. Yes. Yeah. And I want to say that's I completely agree. And that's not stupid pie in the sky, left wing, socialist, muffy, fluffy stuff either. It is true that in the arena of trust, the ability of individuals to have an impact is really quite large. You know, a few people behaving in a determined kind of a way can have quite an outsized impact. You don't have to wait for the CEO to do it. You don't have to wait for the incentive system to make it worth your while. You can be behaving in these ways and watch the ripple effects. They're quite, quite extraordinary. And how would you answer, and I've just been in this conversation more times than I would have liked to in my life. <laughs> so I'm curious what your response would be. There have been many times where we've had conversations with, for example, pharmaceutical marketing managers who we've said, look, we have to think relationally. Like, for example, one quote I heard that I, I really like is, um, you know, you don't close a sale, you open a relationship. Yes. I mean, nothing for nothing. They're bonus and they're they are evaluated on how, right. how many drugs they can sell. So what comes up relatively quickly is, yeah, but when does the drug get sold? In, right. in like in some ways equating the more time we spend actually selling a product and this could be transferred to really anything, you know, like a technology, yes. like and just any a product of any kind. Right. Does the more time we spend actually pushing our product equal higher sales? I know that dialogue perfectly well, too. And it, it, it uh, you do find it more in the pharmaceutical industry, the extreme cases of it, I find, than, than almost anywhere else. And it's just it is wrong, wrong, wrong. There are two ways in which it's wrong. Number one, people do not like being pushed. If you watch the behavior, if you physically videotape the interaction between a, a rep and a physician, for example, while this is going on, you just look at them squirming, trying to get away, you know, waiting to sit out this little pitch, rolling their eyes, all this body language that says, boy, do I not want to be here if I didn't have to be. 
so the, the notion that by forcing people to listen to you and selling, 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 somehow you can con people into thinking is, is counterintuitive. And it only works if you control the supply, if you control the monopoly situation and people have no choice, then you can kid yourself that it's working. The other thing is, is really short-term thinking. And, and let's not pick on pharmaceuticals here. Let's pick on industry and business at large. I hear this all the time. You don't understand I need to make payroll. You don't understand I got to make the sale. I got quarterly quotas. Well, guess what? What do you think is more effective, executing a quarterly strategy and changing it every single quarter or coming up with a five and 10-year strategy and consistently, effectively executing on that strategy with a few fine tunings along the way? Always the second one works better. Anybody will nod their head when I put it that way. You can't just randomly change your strategies all the time. And yet that's what that argument amounts to. I need to make the quarter, um, my sales this quarter means I don't give a darn about you, the customer, the client. I'm out to make my numbers no matter what you need. The truth is you get better numbers over time, better numbers, not worse, by playing long-term client, customer focus, collaboration, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not just blowing smoke here. It takes about nine months on average. That figure, it depends on the industry. It depends on the situation. But after about nine months, you will see better sales performance from people who behave in long-term collaborative ways than you do from the constantly pushing, manipulative, short-term, make-the-numbers kind of orientation. So they're wrong on the numbers. As you say that, it is viscerally extremely clear what is going on is that by, you know, you might make your numbers one quarter, but by destroying the trust, you erode. You're eating your own seed corn. That's exactly right. What you just mentioned also might be very true. You know, before the patent cliff, pharmaceutical industry and medical device, you know, there there was a lot of industries that were, you know, in the um, healthcare space and, and you know, payers. There, there's a lot of, there had been a lot of kind of monopolistic entities that were right. out there that probably learned during those times that the harder they pushed, the more sales they had simply because they, you know, if you have a monopoly, you can do that. Yes. But now that's not the case. So we need to switch up our game. When you were talking, it really occurred to me that leadership of organizations could be really important here. How many times have you, you know, gone into a business and seen some kind of credo on the wall that nobody pays any attention to. Right, right. Or it's one thing for a leader to say, we want relationships, you know, we're, we're concerned about the long term here and then hammer sure. product managers over the head to deliver the numbers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know that it all starts from the individual and we, we talked about this earlier, but can leadership be kind of a force multiplier in this? You know, if leadership really embodies that trust equation and really makes their organizations understand the value of this trust, how much does that matter? Yeah, we often hear how leadership, you know, makes a big difference and you can't do it if it doesn't lead with the CEO's office and all that sort of thing. What's unique about trust, I think, is that there's an outsized impact on the behavior of the CEO or the leader. It's less about what they say. It's much more about what they do. So you, you'll find, I don't know any leader or CEO that won't say, oh, we value relationships and customers and so forth. As you point out, you know, their next actions are often very cynically at odds with that. Leaders who embody very personally the kinds of attributes that we've talked about have a huge impact. When people see a leader saying, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Whoa, and it's okay to say you don't know? When people see a leader who actually listens and pays attention to a subordinate, 
and and displays characteristics of, of empathy. It, it's just, uh, it's remarkable. We are, you know, the older I get, the more I look at business and history and so forth, and the more I become convinced of the power of individual leaders. People, human beings, really have an outsized impact. You know, you watch the series of Roosevelt's that was on this uh, these past few weeks or something, and you realize what an outsized impact personalities have in, in positions of leadership. It's especially true with trust. So walk the talk turns out to be much more powerful in trust than almost anything else I can think of. So basically your advice is that regardless of, of who your CEO is, that if we want to improve our trust, we just simply need to work on ourselves. However, if we have a CEO or if we are a CEO, then we need to really take a good, hard, hold look at are we trustworthy ourselves yep. because our influence will trickle down. Uh, that's exactly right. We, we watch people whom we admire and respect or in positions of responsibility and we emulate or, and we judge them. What's the Gandhi phrase? Be the change you want in the world. <laughs> I love it's, it. It's, it's a great model. He's absolutely right in trust. So we might have already covered this, Charlie, but um, if someone cleared their calendar and they've got three hours in this afternoon to do something to improve their, their score in the trust e equation, what would you suggest or did we already go through that? We, t we did touch on it, but it's worth, it really is worth reemphasizing. It's listening with a sense of curiosity and respect to affirm the other person. I don't know what you call that. Call it empathetic listening, call it affirmative listening, but it's different. I mean, if you go read the stuff that's out there, there are millions of things on listening and paying attention and body mirroring and all that stuff, but most of it's aimed at how do you get something for you out of listening to them. And what I'm talking about is, is how do you simply give people a gift, a very fine gift of your attention? How do you pay attention? The, the, the phrase is interesting. How do we, it's something we pay. What drives what that drives is this reciprocal behavior on the part of other people that goes right to the foundation of not only social etiquette, but business and relationships. If you do X for me, I will do Y for you. We've come to think of that equation as being somehow uh, loaded with quid pro quo and illegal and so forth. But the if you do X for me, I do Y for you formula is at the heart of relationships. We do things for other people, not for, uh, so that they will do things for us. But the fact is that in so doing, they do do things for us. So go out and practice listening as a form of paying attention, you know, and then you gradually build up trying this kind of listening on people in your life whom, who have much more control over you. Typically, the big three are, you know, your boss, your customer and your uh, and your spouse. If you can listen to them in the kinds of ways that I just talked about, showing respect, being curious, you'll be astonished at the kind of powerful impact that can come right back at you. Well, that is something which I am going to work on today. <laughs> so, Charlie, how can people reach you? They can reach me at my website, trustedadvisor.com, T-R-U-S-T-E-D-A-D-V-I-S-O-R.com, or if they happen to have a pencil, C Green, that's C-G-R-E-E-N, at trustedadvisor.com. And you do trust consulting. So, in other words, a business could hire you in order to help their, their team become uh, more trustworthy. Is that, is that how it works? That's correct. Consulting and, and some workshops and keynotes and some videos and diagnostic tools and so forth. Yes. I can definitely tell you that, that Charlie has some great resources on his website, which we will also post the link to on the RelentlessHealthValue.com show notes for this episode. Thank you, Stacey. Well, I thank you so much for being on the show today, Charlie. Uh, it's been a pleasure, too. Thank you.
go to relentlesshealthvalue.com slash 21 for all of the links that Charlie mentions. Did you know that you do not have to remember to download the latest Relentless Health Value podcast each week? You can subscribe. If you subscribe, then the episode will be automatically delivered to you in one of two ways. The first way is via iTunes. If you go to RelentlessHealthValue.com and you look over in the right-hand sidebar, you will see a gigantic orange dot. If you click on that dot, you will be taken over to iTunes, and if you hit subscribe there, then every week in your iTunes library, the podcast will automatically download. If you use the podcast app, it will be extra convenient. The other way to subscribe is by looking right underneath that large orange dot to a little form there that says, get the podcast delivered to your email. If you click on that button and type in your email address, then once a week you will get an email with a link to the podcast. It is very easy to subscribe. I'm so glad that you listened this week. Please interact with us on Twitter. We are at Relentless Health on Twitter, and that would be Relentless with only one S. So Relentless with one S, health. Please definitely feel free to interact with us, leave a comment, ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. And I very much hope that you'll tune in next week.